Chapter 9 of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert. Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce. Translated by Douglas Ainsley, 1865 to 1948. Chapter 9. Indivisibility of Expression into Modes or Grades and Critique of Rhetoric. The Characteristics of Art. It is customary to give long enumerations of the characteristics of art. Having reached this point of the treatise, having studied the artistic function as spiritual activity, as theoretic activity, and as special theoretic activity, intuitive, we are able to discern that those various and copious descriptions mean, when they mean anything at all, nothing but a repetition of what may be called the qualities of the aesthetic function, generic, specific, and characteristic. To the first of these are referred, as we have already observed, the characters, or better, the verbal variants of unity, and of unity in variety, those also of simplicity, of originality, and so on. To the second of these the characteristics of truth, of sincerity, and the like. To the third, the characteristics of life, of vivacity, of animation, of concretion, of individuality, of characteristicality. The words may vary yet more, but they will not contribute anything scientifically new. The results which we have shown have altogether exhausted the analysis of expression as such. In existence of modes of expression. But at this point, the question as to whether there be various modes or grades of expression is still perfectly legitimate. We have distinguished two grades of activity, each of which is subdivided into two other grades, and there is certainly, so far, no visible logical reason why there should not exist two or more modes of the aesthetic, that is, of expression. The only objection is that these modes do not exist. For the present, at least, it is a question of simple internal observation and of self-consciousness. One may scrutinize aesthetic facts as much as one will. No formal differences will ever be found among them, nor will the aesthetic fact be divisible into a first and a second degree. This signifies that a philosophical classification of expressions is not possible. Single expressive facts are so many individuals of which the one cannot be compared with the other, save generically, in so far as each is expression. To use the language of the schools, expression is a species which cannot in its turn perform the functions of genus. Impressions, that is to say contents, vary. Every content differs from every other content, because nothing in life repeats itself, and the continuous variation of contents follows the irreducible variety of expressive facts, the aesthetic syntheses of the impressions. Impossibility of translations A corollary of this is the impossibility of translations, in so far as they pretend to effect the transference of one expression into another, like a liquid poured from a vase of a certain shape into a vase of another shape. We can elaborate logically what we have already elaborated in aesthetic form only, but we cannot reduce that which has already possessed its aesthetic form to another form also aesthetic. 
in truth every translation either diminishes and spoils or it creates a new expression by putting the former back into the crucible and mixing it with other impressions belonging to the pretended translator in the former case the expression always remains one that of the original the translation being more or less deficient that is to say not properly expression in the other case there would certainly be two expressions but with two different contents ugly faithful ones or faithless beauties is a proverb that well expresses the dilemma with which every translator is faced in aesthetic translations such as those which are word for word or interlinear or paraphrastic translations are to be looked upon as simple commentaries on the original critique of rhetorical categories the division of expressions into various classes is known in literature by the name of theory of ornament or of rhetorical categories but similar attempts at classification in the other forms of art are not wanting suffice it to mention the realistic and symbolic forms spoken of in painting and sculpture the scientific value to be attached in aesthetic and in aesthetic criticism to these distinctions of realistic and symbolic of style and absence of style of objective and subjective of classic and romantic of simple and ornate of proper and metaphorical of the fourteen forms of metaphor of the figures of word and of sentence and further of pleonism of ellipse of inversion of repetition of synonyms and homonyms and so on is nil or altogether negative to none of these terms and distinctions can be given a satisfactory aesthetic definition those that have been attempted when they are not obviously erroneous are words devoid of sense a typical example of this is the very common definition of metaphor as of another word used in place of the word itself now why give oneself this trouble why take the worse and longer road when you know the shorter and better road perhaps as is generally said because the correct word is in certain cases not so expressive as the so-called incorrect word or metaphor but in that case the metaphor becomes exactly the right word and the so-called right word if it were used would be but little expressive and therefore most improper similar observations of elementary good sense can be made regarding the other categories as for example the generic one of the ornate one can ask oneself how an ornament can be joined to expression externally in that case it must always remain separate internally in that case either it does not assist expression and mars it or it does form part of it and is not ornament but a constituent element of expression indistinguishable from the whole it is not necessary to dwell upon the harm done by these distinctions rhetoric has often been declaimed against but although there has been rebellion against its consequences its principles have been carefully preserved perhaps in order to show proof of philosophic coherence rhetoric has contributed if not to make dominant in literary production at least to justify theoretically that particular mode of writing ill which is called fine writing or writing according to rhetoric empirical sense of the rhetorical categories 
The terms above mentioned would never have gone beyond the schools where we all of us learned them, certain of never finding the opportunity of using them in strictly aesthetic discussions, or even of doing so jocosely and with a comic intention, save when occasionally employed in one of the following significations, as verbal variants of the aesthetic concept, as indications of the anti-aesthetic, or finally, and this is their most important use, in a sense which is no longer aesthetic and literary, but merely logical. Use of these categories as synonyms of the aesthetic fact. Expressions are not divisible into classes, but some are successful, others half-successful, others failures. There are perfect and imperfect, complete and deficient expressions. The terms already cited, then, sometimes indicate the successful expression, sometimes the various forms of the failures, but they are employed in the most inconstant and capricious manner, for it often happens that the same word serves now to proclaim the perfect, now to condemn the imperfect. An instance of this is found when someone criticizing two pictures, the one without inspiration in which the author has copied natural objects without intelligence, the other inspired, but without obvious likeness to existing objects, calls the first realistic, the second symbolic. Others, on the contrary, pronounce the word realistic about a strongly felt picture representing a scene of ordinary life, while they talk of symbolic in reference to another picture representing but a cold allegory. It is evident that in the first case symbolic means artistic, and realistic inartistic, while in the second, realistic is synonymous with artistic and symbolic with inartistic. How, then, can we be astonished when some hotly maintain that the true art form is the symbolic, and that the realistic is inartistic, others that the realistic is the artistic, and the symbolic the inartistic? We cannot but grant that both are right, since each makes use of the same words in senses so diverse the great disputes about the classic and the romantic are frequently based upon such equivoques. Sometimes the former was understood as the artistically perfect, and the second as lacking balance and imperfect. At others the classic was cold and artificial, the romantic sincere, warm, efficacious, and truly expressive. Thus it was always possible to take the side of the classic against the romantic, or of the romantic against the classic. The same thing happens as regards the word style. Sometimes it is affirmed that every writer should have style. Here style is synonymous with form or expression. Sometimes the form of a code of laws or of a mathematical work is said to be devoid of style. Here the error of admitting diverse modes of expression is again committed, of admitting an ornate and a naked form of expression because, since style is form, the code and the mathematical treatise must also, strictly speaking, have each its style. At other times, one hears the critics blaming someone for having too much style, or for writing a style. Here it is clear that style signifies not the form, nor a mode of it, but improper and pretentious expression, which is one form of the inartistic. Their use to indicate various aesthetic imperfections. 
Passing to the second, not altogether insignificant, use of these words and distinctions, we sometimes find in the examination of a literary composition such remarks as follow. Here is pleonasm, here an ellipse, there a metaphor, here again a synonym or an equivoque. This means that in one place is an error consisting of using a larger number of words than is necessary, pleonasm that in another the error arises from too few having been used, ellipse, elsewhere from the use of an unsuitable word, metaphor, or from the use of two words which seem to express two different things, where they really express the same thing, synonym, or that, on the contrary, it arises from having employed one which seems to express the same thing where it expresses two different things, equivoque. This pejorative and pathological use of the terms is, however, more uncommon than the preceding. Their use, in a sense, transcending aesthetic in the service of science. Finally, when rhetorical terminology possesses no aesthetic signification, similar or analogous to those passed in review, and yet one is aware that it is not void of meaning and designates something that deserves to be noted, it is then used in the service of logic and of science. If it be granted that a concept used in a scientific sense by a given writer is expressed with a definite term, it is natural that other words formed by that writer as used to signify the same concept, or incidentally made use of by him, become, in respect to, the vocabulary fixed upon by him as true, metaphors, synecdoches, synonyms, elliptic forms, and the like. We, too, in the course of this treatise, have several times made use of, and intend again to make use of such terms, in order to make clear the sense of the words we employ, or may find employed. But this proceeding, which is of value in the disquisitions of scientific and intellectual criticism, has none whatever in aesthetic criticism. For science there exist appropriate words and metaphors, the same concept may be psychologically formed in various circumstances, and therefore be expressed with various intuitions. When the scientific terminology of a given writer has been established, and one of these modes has been fixed as correct, then all other uses of it become improper or tropical. But in the aesthetic fact exist only appropriate words. The same intuition can only be expressed in one way, precisely because it is an intuition and not a concept. Rhetoric in the Schools Some, while they admit the aesthetic insufficiency of the rhetorical categories, yet make a reserve as regards their utility and the service they are supposed to render, especially in schools of literature. We confess that we fail to understand how error and confusion can educate the mind to logical clearness, or aid the teaching of a science which they disturb and obscure. Perhaps it may be desired to say that they can aid memory and learning as empirical classes, as was admitted above for literary and artistic styles. But there is another purpose for which the rhetorical categories should certainly continue to be admitted to the schools, to be criticized there. We cannot simply forget the errors of the past, and truth cannot be kept alive save by making it fight against error. Unless a notion of the rhetorical categories be given, accompanied by a suitable criticism of these, there is a risk of their springing up again. 
for they are already springing up with certain philologists, disguised as most recent psychological discoveries. THE RESEMBLANCES OF EXPRESSIONS It would seem as though we wish to deny all bond of likeness among themselves between expressions and works of art. The likenesses exist, and owing to them, works of art can be arranged in this or that group, but they are likenesses such as are observed among individuals, and can never be rendered with abstract definitions. That is to say, these likenesses have nothing to do with identification, subordination, coordination, and the other relations of concepts. They consist wholly in what is called a family likeness, and are connected with those historical conditions existing at the birth of the various works, or in an affinity of soul between the artists. THE RELATIVE POSSIBILITY OF TRANSLATIONS It is in these resemblances that lies the relative possibility of translations. This does not consist of the reproduction of the same original expressions, which it would be vain to attempt, but in the measure that expressions are given, more or less nearly resembling those. The translation that passes for good is an approximation which has original value as a work of art, and can stand by itself. End of chapter 9 Recording by Lisa Reichert